open your Bibles there. If you don't have a Bible, you might find one in one of the seat bottoms in front of you. And in that Bible, Psalm 63 should be on page 409. Let's start, as we think about Psalm 63, by remembering our purpose as a church. It's up there, and as you know by now, I find a triangle to be a helpful way to conceptualize CBC's purpose. The upward dimension uh, of our purpose is to know God. And the inward dimension is to grow together as a community. And the outward dimension is to show Christ as we reach out into the world. And last Sunday and this Sunday, we're looking at the upward dimension, the knowing God part. Last week, we looked at knowing God through the Bible because God has revealed himself to us through this book. And today, we're looking at the knowing God part uh, through prayer. Prayer is a relevant topic for us because we all pray, right? In fact, do you know that researchers estimate that 90% of Americans pray? That includes many, of course, who don't go to church and who wouldn't consider themselves particularly amazing, but they still are, I'm sorry, particularly um, religious. Maybe they think they're amazing, I don't know. Um, But people, religious and non-religious alike, pray, 90% of them. And according to a 2008 study uh, by Brandeis University, Americans pray for three basic reasons, to thank God for things, to ask God for things, and to do both. So how do you pray? Knowing how to prayer is pretty important. I mean, most people do it, and for us, prayer is a key part of our purpose as a church. It's a key way that we get to know who God is and what God is like, and that we get to know God personally. But this raises a lot of questions. Uh, who, who should we pray to? How should we address this being? What should we say when we pray? Do you ever wish you were better at praying? Well, are we on our own to figure it out? Or has God told us how he wants us to pray to him? Last week we celebrated with the psalmist in Psalm 19 how wonderful the Bible is. And one reason the Bible is so wonderful is because In it, God not only talks to us, but he teaches us how he wants us to talk to him. And one of the main places that God reveals to us how we're to talk to him is in the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms are a collection of prayers by various people in ancient times. People like King David and Asaph and the sons of Korah and and others. And somewhere along the way... God singled out some of these prayers and caused them to be gathered together, excuse me, in a collection to serve as an example to us of how God likes to be prayed to. What a gift this book is. What a treasure it is. You could say that the Psalms are a prayer manual for us. And they're such a good manual, in fact, that God's people for Thousands of years, both before and after Christ, have used the Psalms as the primary guide to learn how to pray. If you 
look through the Bible and you read the prayers of people in the Bible, people like the prophet Jonah and the priest Zechariah and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus himself, and a number of Jesus' disciples, others as well, you will see lots of snatches of psalms in their prayers. And given this fact, it's something of a scandal and a tragedy that evangelical Christians in the past few centuries have suddenly chucked this book of Psalms aside as a main source for learning to pray. Well, here at CBC, we're in the Psalms in October and November, and today's Psalm, Psalm 63, is a prime example of a Psalm that teaches us to pray. It teaches us that... Prayer often begins as complaints, and that's quite okay with God. And sooner or later, good praying gets our focus on God, and, and then we move from complaining to remembering, and from remembering to trusting, and from trusting to praising. In fact, asking God for things, which we often think of first when we think of praying, is only one part of what prayer is, according to the Psalms, and it's not even the majority part at that. And in this psalm, Psalm 63, there's no asking at all. No asking in the whole psalm. Now, it's kind of unfair, actually, to focus a study of prayer on Psalm 63, because as we'll see, this psalm demonstrates some real expertise at praying. This isn't a prayer for novices, uh, someone who's just getting started praying. There are psalms like that. There are psalms, as you read through the book of Psalms, for beginners. Psalms that are st stuck in complaint mode. And, and, and psalms which really struggle to get the focus onto God and to move to a place of trust or praise. Many of us would probably find those psalms more helpful. I know I do. I, I love the, the lament psalms. They're where I'm at when I try to learn to pray. But Psalm 63 we'll see moves easily and quickly from complaint right on to remembering and then to trust and then to pray, prayer, uh, praise, sorry. The, the psalmist makes it look so easy. But there's something exhilarating about a psalm like this. Just like if we were learning to hit a baseball instead of learning to pray, we might benefit um, from a basic batting practice video demonstrating how to con make contact with a nice easy lob ball. But yet, there's something inspiring, isn't there, about watching Alex Rodriguez hit a 100-mile-an-hour fastball right out of the park. And that's what we have in this psalm. This is inspiring praying. This is prayer at its best. So let's see if it can teach us anything about praying and if it can inspire us to pray. First, let me say that I, like you, I'm sure, have prayed in all sorts of situations. I've prayed when things have go been going really badly, when I've been out of work for months and was worried and discouraged. I've prayed when I was hurt and bleeding in my heart because someone I cared about had just emotionally beat up on me or uh, stabbed me in the back. I've prayed when I was lonely or, or grieving because I'd been separated from someone I loved. I've prayed when I was scared because I was in physical danger or, or had, was facing some serious health concerns. I've prayed in all those situations. I've also prayed when things have been really great. I've prayed when I asked the woman I love to marry me and she said yes. 
And when I had just enjoyed great times with close friends, I've prayed when I got a job I was really excited about. I prayed when I had just been uh, on a spiritual retreat and had a, a powerful encounter with God there and I just felt full of God's love. I, I prayed in all of those situations too. And if the first set of situations could be called the desert, and if the second set of situations could be called the mountaintop, then Psalm 63 is a prayer prayed in the desert. It begins, O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My soul longs for you in a dry and a weary land where there is no water. These are the words that inspired Rich Mullen's classic song, Step by Step. O oh God, you are my God, and I will ever praise you. And because of that song and because the verbs that open this psalm, like thirst and long and seek, because of those verbs, I, I always assumed, along with that song, that this must be a mountaintop psalm. Like it was being prayed by someone who was just full of, of passion and devotion for God. But if you stop and think about it, that's just not the case. Who longs for what they already have? Who seeks what they've already found? Who thirsts after they've already drunk? Look at the superscription of the psalm. It's a psalm of David prayed in the desert of Judah. And there are two times we know from the book of First and Second Samuel that David was in the desert of Judah. The first one was when he was running from his father-in-law Saul who had kicked him out of the royal house and was now trying to hunt him down and kill him. The other time was when David's son Absalom had betrayed David and had rebelled against him and had stolen David's throne and had sent David fleeing out for his life into the desert. And I tend to think this psalm was written about that second, second circumstance because if you look at verse 11, it refers to the king. And I'm assuming here that David is referring to himself here. That seems to make the most sense as you read the psalm. Well, David wasn't king yet when he was fleeing from Saul, but he was king when he was fleeing from Absalom. But regardless of which option you choose, or, or maybe it's reflecting on both of those cases, this is a psalm prayed in deep brokenness and pain. It's prayed by someone who's literally experiencing abuse from a close family member. Granted, David is a grown man, but, but the situation in which this psalm is, is prayed reminds me of, of a child hiding out in the backyard from a drunk, enraged father who is trying to beat him up. Some of you have been there. You relate to what David is going through emotionally in this psalm. That's the kind of situation David is praying in. And Second Samuel tells us he's both emotionally and literally in the desert. And, and when David had to hastily flee for his life from his son Absalom, he and his household and his men had to march more than 20 miles through the desert. 
And 2 Samuel 16, 14 concludes that when they arrived at their destination, David and those with him were famished. And I don't know about you, when I walk more than a couple miles, I get tired, I get thirsty, I get hungry. Just ask my wife. She's teaching me not to complain because she likes to hike. But multiply that several times over and, and take your walk in the desert where, where it's dry and, and probably hot and, and see how you feel after 20 miles of that. That's the context in which David prays this prayer. Add to that verse 6 where David says he, he thinks of God through the watches of the night. Is David so spiritual here after that long hike that, that, that there in the desert he pulls an all-nighter to think about God? I think it's more likely that he's so troubled inside he can't sleep after the day he's been through. Well, now to the psalm itself, and let's see how it teaches us to pray, how, how to pray in desert circumstances. David begins his prayer in verse 1 with a complaint. He's looking for God. He's, he's seeking God. Where is God? He, he thirsts for God. He longs for God in a dry and, and weary land where there is no water. Literally, there is no water. And, and I sense that that's what David is feeling on the inside, too. Parched. Dry. His close family member, maybe his own son, has just betrayed him. And he doesn't know if he's going to live through it. His life has just been totally upended. And where is God in this? Boy, how many other times in the Psalms does David pray a similar prayer? So often he's in trouble. He's in danger. He prays, where are you, God? I'm all alone. I'm, I'm vulnerable. I'm getting stabbed in the back by, by people who hate me. People are trying to take my life. Help! And you know it's okay to complain to God. The Psalms give us permission. Not, not just to complain, but to complain to God. In fact, they encourage us to complain to Him. To, to question Him. We do anyway, right? We have those thoughts. We have those feelings. And the psalmist says, in effect, don't, don't be guilty about that. Don't hide them from God. Rather, pray them out to God. Admit them to God. Vent on Him. He can take it. Yet in this psalm, David doesn't stay there very long in that place of complaint. That's why I think this is the mature David. Because... By this time, it seems, David has become an expert at, at praying to and trusting in his God. And so by verse 2, he's already moving on from that complaint about his current circumstances to, to remembering how good God has been to him in the past. He remembers good times he's had with God in, at the sanctuary, the place where God was worshipped at that time. There, in the architecture and the, the art, in the the pageantry and the symbols of the sanctuary, in the songs, in God's word as it was read and as it was taught by the priests, there David had gotten a glimpse of God's power and God's glory. And now he remembers it. 
Now David is in the desert. He's cut off from the sanctuary back in Jerusalem. He can't go there. But, but in his mind, in his memory, he can go back and he remembers how amazing God is. He remembers those times of worship. He remembers also, verse 4, that God's love is better than life. Now doesn't that line just astound you and encourage you? God's love is better than life. David's life is in danger. He's parched, he's famished, he's exhausted, his world has been turned upside down, his heart is bleeding, he fears for his life, and yet he can pray to God, your love is better than life. I need food, I need water, I need security and protection, I need comfort, but even more than those things, I long to know your love, God. To remember it, to feel it, to experience it. It's better than life. Have you ever felt God's love? Have you ever felt God wrap his arms around you? I have, and, and if you have, then you know that there's nothing better than that. Preacher Damien Spickerite tells a story about when he was a teenager. And his father died suddenly two days before Damien's high school graduation. And Damien, Damien was a brand new baby Christian at the time, and, and he didn't know God very well, but he found himself really wanting to hear from God at that time in his life. Why? Why, God, did you let this happen? And how are you going to get me and my family through this? So Damien prayed, and, and he waited on God to speak to him. And the day of the funeral came and the church was packed and he sat on the front pew with his mother and his two younger sisters. And the minister spoke, but Damien doesn't remember what he said. <laughs> and the service continued and Damien kept waiting for God to say something. And then it was over. And then there was a time of, um, to greet the family afterwards. There was a receiving line. And, and people came, and one by one they offered words of condolence and encouragement, and there were tears and there were hugs. And Damien recounts, I don't remember what anyone said to me in that time, but I continued to wait for God to speak. And then I saw Kim O'Quinn. She was my age. We were in the youth group together. And when she got to me, she didn't say a word. She had tears in her eyes, and she simply hugged me, and then she walked off. But I heard God speak. It dawned on me just months before I had attended another funeral. The funeral for Kim O'Quinn's father. And in that moment, she knew exactly what it meant to be me. The love of God. That's the love the psalmist is talking about. The love we desperately need from, from someone who's been there who knows what it's like to go through what we have to go through. On the cross, God has felt our pain. And, and he loves us. And the psalmist knows this love, though he doesn't know it like we do. Of course, Jesus hadn't come yet. But, but he's experienced God's love in the past. And so he says, God, your love is better than life. 
That's a big part of what prayer is. It's, it's taking time to remember and to open ourselves up to the reality of, of God's love for us in the present moment. In the stress, in the crisis, when it's scary, when it hurts, the love of the Lord is better than life. Remembering God's love, remembering God's power and glory, move the psalmist from a place of complaint to a place of trust. And so he prays, verse 3, Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. And in verse 7, Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. David is in big trouble here, but, but he knows God is his help. And so he anticipates that God's help will come, and, and so he can sing in the shadow of God's wings. Maybe David is thinking about the Ark of the Covenant here. It, it, it had a cover uh, with two um, gold cherubim angels on it, and, and their wings stretched out over the cover of the Ark, and that was the place where God was present. Or maybe David was thinking about a mother bird who, who would stretch out her wings to protect her young. Either way, David is, is using his imagination to remind himself that he's in a place of safety. That God, his God, the powerful and glorious God, loves him. And God's protecting wings are over him and around him. And so David is secure. David goes on in verse 8. I cling to you. My, or your right hand upholds me. And along with verse 3, this is my favorite moment in the whole psalm. It's a wonderful expression of, of a covenant relationship where two parties, two people are bound to one another in, in bonds of commitment. God, for his part, will uphold David with all the strength that his right hand symbolizes. And David, for his part, will cling to God. Picture that. A, a scared child clings to its father. A mountain climber takes a false step and, and clings to a rocky outcrop. A kitten climbs up a tree and clings to a tree branch. That's the posture of real prayer. That's so often all we can contribute to our relationship with God. We, we cling desperately. And God, for his part, is faithful to uphold us. Not that he always rescues us from our problems. Think of how many parents love their children and yet, nevertheless, they proudly send them into harm's way to serve in our military. Likewise, God doesn't coddle us and, and protect us from every danger and problem even though he loves us. No, rather God upholds us in the midst of our problems. He gives us strength to get through one step at a time. Whatever he allows us to go through. He's brought me through depression, through brokenheartedness, through poverty, 
through career failure, through rejection and criticism, through betrayal. And he's done that for many of us, hasn't he? Well, now David turns his attention to his enemies, to those who have forced him away from God's people and from God's presence, who have forced him out of his job, out of his home, away from his family, into the desert, literally, where they're trying to hunt him down and kill him. And in verses 9 to 10, David prays, those who seek my life will be destroyed. They'll go down to the depths of the earth. They'll be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. Now this is pretty gruesome language for us. David was a warrior. And this is the way warriors pray. <laughs> David is facing an, a very real, imminent battle. And at the end of that battle, someone is going to die. And figuratively speaking, go down to the depths of the earth. Someone is going to be food for the jackals who scavenge in the desert. Who will it be? Either it's going to be David and his men, or it's going to be the ones who are seeking to take his life. And David is confident in this case that God, his God, will vindicate him and enable him to defeat his enemy. David has amazing trust in God's help. So how do we pray these verses about war today? Well, what kind of battles has God called you to fight? At school? At work? In your own heart and soul? As you wrestle with thoughts, with temptations, with sins? Who are the enemies? And what would their defeat look like? Do you have a good enough connection with God to be sure that you're really on His side? Don't presume easily. Are you sure that you're in the right and so you can count on God to give you the victory? Do you have enough trust in God to know that He's going to give you the victory? Well, if so, then rejoice because the victory is coming. And let him know that you trust in him to deliver you. That's how you can pray these verses. Well, lastly, David moves into the mode of praise. Notice that all David's praises are in the future tense. Verses 4 and 5. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your hands I will lift up. Or in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied with the richest of foods, though he isn't fully satisfied yet there in the desert. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. And verse 11, But the king will rejoice in you. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. David is looking forward to the day, very soon he hopes, when God will rescue him. And then he, he can go back to God's sanctuary in Jerusalem and praise God for his deliverance. Right now, though, he's still in the desert. He's dry and, and famished and, and sleepless and in danger. Yet, praise is already beginning to flood into his soul. 
He's already saving, savoring, verse 5, how he will be fully satisfied with the richest of foods. He's already picturing himself at the banqueting table laden with royal delicacies. And that's what God's goodness is like to him. He's already leaning into the future, God's future. He's looking forward to God's deliverance and thinking how he will praise God then. And, and so that future begins to break into his heart now. As he prays, David is becoming expectant, joyfully expectant. Like a kid who's, who's straining at the window watching for the mailman to arrive because he knows that there's going to be a birthday package for him. David's face is pressed against the window, looking for God's answer to come. And, and so he's welling up with praise, anticipating how good it will be to, to be back among God's people again in Jerusalem, praising God with all his might. Now that might seem presumptuous to us, to be praising God for an answer to prayer that hasn't even happened yet. But I think it just shows how we don't know God really all that well yet. And we don't realize how willing God is to be faithful to rescue his people. The bottom line is we don't really know how to pray very well. I'll speak for myself when I read a psalm like this. But the psalms are teaching me. And they're here to teach us. You'll find again and again in the Psalms this movement from complaining to remembering to trusting to praising. The psalmist gets in trouble again and again and he, he cries out to God. He complains to God. And, and as he does, he, and as he wrestles in his soul, he, he comes to the place of trust as he remembers who God is and, and what God has done for him and for his people in the past. And then, as the psalmist comes to trust God, he promises that, that when God does come through, he'll praise God for it. In fact, sometimes the psalmist gets so excited that, that, that he just starts praising God now, even before the answers come. Well, we've still got a lot to learn about prayer, don't we? It's inspiring to watch the psalmist hit one 400 feet over the center field wall. But we've still got to learn to make contact with a nice slow lobber. So we're going to have to practice, and that's what we're going to do now, right here for the next five or ten minutes. I want to invite you to pray, and um, we can leave that slide up. Um, and let's work through the movements of this prayer. Let's start, uh, we'll move from complaining to remembering to trust and praise. We'll start with complaining. And I just want to invite you, first of all, for a couple minutes, to pray prayers of complaint to God from your own life. You can pray them silently if you're not comfortable praying them out loud, but you're welcome to pray out loud too, and we'll have a time of prayer. And then I'll move us on through the other three. So let's pray.